1 John uh, 5, verses 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of Him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Fabulous, Matt. Has everyone met Matt? You should, you should, you should. It's quite something. You know that his grandma planted a church when she was 72? It's one of the churches we work with on the Isle of Mauritius. It's, it's raging right now. It's an amazing community with people coming to faith. But a granny who's got a few ladies together to pray became the incubating space for a life-transforming community on the island of Mauritius. Okay, legacy matters. We've spent, I don't know how long, 8, 10, 12 weeks just walking our way through a pretty remarkable book or um, what Tomeki calls a poetic sermon. And we've picked away at it. We've kind of tried to hand uh, identify the things that are so pivotal to us. Now, let me create an imagination for your imagination moment uh, if you haven't been with us. Picture a man in his 90s. He's probably a little hard of hearing. His eyesight's definitely going. His chest is probably rounded. His back is somewhat stooped. He isn't as strong as he used to be. His mind might not be as sharp as it used to be, or he is very wise in his cyclic repetition of ideas. He's the last one of the 12 who still lives. Every other one has died dramatically, martyred, uh, executed, put to the sword. In fact, legend has it that he was thrown into a pot of boiling oil and did not die, so they took him out. Now, you can imagine the weight of this old man who sees the first wave of Jesus' lovers gone. Persecution is a plenty. Jerusalem has just been sacked in, as it was at 73 AD, and there is trauma at every turn. I see him pacing up and down. He's got a scribe writing. And as he talks, the scribe is writing down a deep fatherly message, one of deep affection. The things that matter is what I hear John saying. You know, last words are pretty sublime. Tim Keller, how many of you know who Tim Keller is? I'm, I'm not having a great week of people who know someone. Well, he passed away a week ago. The people who were there said that his wife pecked him on the forehead, and his final words were, and I quote, there is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. A man of peace, going to meet the Jesus that he'd spent seven to um, the largest portion of 72 years preaching. What an incredible opportunity 
to meet the one that you have loved so deeply and dearly for so long. But compare it to Joseph Stalin. How many of you know who Joseph Stalin is? We're going to have a history lesson next week, people. Come on. Joseph Stalin led Russia after Lenin did, after the Russian Revolution. Don't get me going. But in his quest to create it into a socialist communist state, if my memory serves me right, he killed about 20 million of his own Russian people. His daughter, who became a Christian, accounts for his final words. Compare that to Tim Keller. She writes, He suddenly lifted his left hand as though he were pointing to something above and bringing down a curse on us all. In violence, in anger, in resentment, he called a curse on everyone. The gesture was incomprehensible and full of menace. No one could say to whom or at what that was directed. The next moment with a final effort, listen to this the way his daughter described it. The spirit wrenched itself free from the flesh. The spirit wrenched, compare these two. Two global figures, one who led to the destruction of millions, one who provided hope and faith for millions. The one says, I basically, there is no downside to me leaving. I would want to say, can I have five more years, God? I've got a wife, I've got sons, I've got grandsons, which Tim Keller, uh, grandkids, which Tim Keller had. But he said, there is no downside, versus Joseph Stalin, who threw his left hand up, called a curse on everyone, and then it was as if his spirit was wrenched from his flesh. John's final words are worthy a consideration. We're landing with these few verses, and there are four essential things that I think John lands on. Have you got that one? Thank you. Community matters, sin matters, evil matters, and eternal life matters. Let's go through them very quickly, as quickly as I'm able to do so. John writes with incredible affection, either to dear children, which is a high family or peace, young men, of course, similarly, fathers or dear friends. His language is incredibly intimate language. Stu, when he preached, did you say there were 26 uses of the word agape in the book? Something like that. Amazing, a five-chapter book on 26 occasions, if my memory serves me right, the word agape, which is a deep, intimate, spiritual word of love. It's not like I love my car or, you know, I love Liverpool soccer team or whatever. It's a deeply intimate word of spiritual engagement. It's love of substance. And what he does, and I want you to hear this, please, please, please. We are fighting such a high, narcissistic, self-absorbed culture. It's all around you. It's all around me. It beckons our attention all the time. But how contrary to that spirit of the age is this beautiful idea of doing life in Christian community. Just pause for a moment. Phyllis Tinkle, she wrote a very interesting book on how the church has, has revolutionized every 500 years. 
She's got some very interesting progressive ideas right now, but I like this one of hers. She said, religion is a social construct as well as an individual or private way of being or understanding. It is a social construct. The Father's heart in me wants every one of you to enjoy the 40 years that Meryl and I have been in Christian community. From the 70s, it's actually longer than that, because when we came to faith, we lived communally, because we believed Jesus was coming back, so we, had, we, we, we didn't save money, we just gave ourselves away, we preached on the streets, we baptized people in the ocean, we believed Jesus was coming back, but they were incredibly compelling times. Living with people where you see them warts and all. Christian community is not a picture of glorious harmony and righteousness. It's the raw, naked reality of people just like you and me who love each other in spite of that. After 42 years of marriage, how and when did I know Meryl loved me when she was able to forgive me for the first time I hurt her and I hurt her badly? Christian community is found and steeped in the ability to understand I will hurt and you will hurt me, and yet I will find the grace offered at the cross to forgive you anyway. Listen to this great quote from my philosophical hero, Francis Schaeffer. He said, our relationships with each other is the criterion the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic. Just keep it up for a moment. Our relationship with each other is the criterion the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. The world, he is arguing, doesn't really care whether Jesus is the Messiah or not. He wants to know, oh, we've got a guy we work with in Sri Lanka. David, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't want to offend Sri Lanka people, but it's a very long last name. It's a very long thing. He was preaching in a village in Sri Lanka two weeks ago. He led a local Buddhist leader to Christ. As he was leaving the space where they were meeting, leaders from the Buddhist community came upon him and beat him up. Literally had him on the ground. Now, he used to be a Tamil tiger. He used to be a terrorist before he came to faith. Christ met him in a remarkable way. This is a man we work with. This isn't a story. This is David. But instead of fighting back, he let them beat him up. They took his bicycle, which is the mode of transport. His grandkids saw it happen. And they said to him, the next time you come into our village, we will kill you. Two days later, he walked back into the village. And the leaders who had beat him up walked up to him and said this, now we know that you truly believe what you believe, that even death would not stop you coming to bring this gospel to us. Ladies and gentlemen, there is something about our relationship with one another that's the criterion the world uses to judge. Is our message truthful? Look around you. Isn't it amazing that people just like you? I've been wearing these pants I've been on the road for two weeks. I haven't washed them yet. I'm embarrassed. I've been flying in this T-shirt because all my other clothes were dirty because our flight got delayed. This is real, people. This is real. We get irritated. 
We get angry. We get agitated. People say things that are uncool. I do. I feel like after every Sunday, I have to apologize to someone about something I said. But Christian community is the ability to traverse those obstacles and to find the beautiful grace. And I can hear John's appeal, stay in community. The only time we leave community is to be alone with him or be a temporary. And then we come back into Christian community, warts and all. I could say more, but I daren't. Time isn't always on our side. Secondly, sin matters. Not only does community matter, but sin matters. You see those incredible verses, and I'm going to say something that I think is going to be quite difficult for some of you. We know that everyone born of God does not continue to sin. When Matt read them, I'm sure you were struck, if you were able to follow on the screen, that he describes two kinds of sin. The sin that doesn't lead to death, and the sin that does lead to death. Now, what on earth does that mean? The sin that leads to death. What, what does that mean? Well, there are four positions theologically which time does not allow me to expand and explore. But let me tell you a Bible story and a story story. The sin that leads to death. Ananias and Sapphira were amongst the early Jesus lovers. We know the story well. It's in the Acts, of the, uh, the, the Acts of the Apostles, and it's in the fifth chapter. And we know the story that they were both deceitful, sowing in seed to this beautiful, virtuous, young, righteous community, seeds of deception and dishonesty and lies. And God says to them, read it if you wish, that he basically struck first the husband, then the wife down because of their lies and deceit, because he was absolutely committed to protecting the virtue of that early church. Please don't think that God lets us get away with everything. That Santa Claus idea of, of God is just not Christian, nor true, nor biblical. Let me tell you a story. A friend of mine led a church, this is going back some years, and there was a man in his church who had multiple affairs, denied all of them. Sunday believed that he was a Christian, raised his hand with the best of them, sang songs with the best of them, but would multiple times during the week go off and meet with a woman that he would have sex with, denying it all of the time. His wife was desperate. He would come in on a Sunday and worship, and then on a Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, he would have intimacy with another woman. Not one. Many. He was confronted a second time using the biblical principle, if there's sin in someone's life that they refuse to recant to, confront them a second time. That didn't happen. In fact, what happened was a third time, my friend who I shall not name, although he tells the story, he went away praying for this man passionately. And he felt the Spirit of God say to him, this man must repent or God will deal with him ever so harshly. He went to see the man. The man chased him out of the house. A week later, he died in a car crash without a mark on his body. Coincidence? Is our God just flippant about sin that we do and we commit as if it makes no, has no consequence? Well, let's have a look at what some other authors say. Robert Yachborough says it this way. The sin that leads to death 
is to have a heart unchanged by God's love in Christ, and so to persist in convictions and acts and commitments. You know, that's why, what's that? Who wants to preach on this? You know, I try to get out of preaching on this. I thought I'd give it to someone else to let's see what they do with it. Because who wants to? Who wants to say there's a possibility that someone who persists in convictions, acts, and commitments that are contrary to God's love could die? Anyone else want to preach that? The only unforgivable sin, he says, is the sin of unwillingness. I do not want to let God come in. Another author said, the sin unto death is the willful, continuous, unrepentant sin. God has called his children to holiness. The sin unto death is willful, continuous, unrepentant sin. God has called his children to holiness. Now, ladies and gentlemen, can I just move on? Because I don't want to preach this. I mean, I, mean I, I don't. The only problem is I see it in the writings with John. I see it in the practice in the book of Acts. And I've seen it happen with others in my lifetime as a leader. Now, if it's true, I think with soberness, we have to look not at the sinfulness of our own periodic demeanors, but where there is, and I quote, a willful, continuous, unrepentant sin. Maybe that's something we should consider. Number three, evil matters. The whole world, John writes, is under the control of the evil one. Keep yourself from idols. Look at these remarkable little verses in this uh, book, and I've just handpicked a few. You have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The one who is in you is greater than the one in the world. Show that photograph, please, Marissa. Does anyone know what this picture is of? See, I have to teach you history. I took that photograph in Dusseldorf five days ago. Sorry? Outside of every house where a Jew was forcibly removed and sent to a concentration camp in Germany, there is a plaque that tells you who that person was, when they were born, and where they were killed, which concentration camp they were either, where they died or they were executed or sent to the gas chambers. Now, you walk, keep the picture up if you don't mind. You walk the streets of Dusseldorf. What do you see? You see the Rhine, beautiful river. You see these exquisite old buildings. You go into them, large apartments, high ceilings, beautifully decorated. You see the pristine accuracy and excellence of the German people. Who would have thought that the people we sat with on the Rhine, watching a bunch of uh, uh, kind of what, uh, kids who were on the street dancing, doesn't matter. Who, who would have thought that they were pos it was possible that this would happen? You see, evil matters. Now, for us and in our world, we don't believe in evil. We don't believe in morality, do we? One of you said to me, for us, sleeping together is not a moral thing. It's not right or wrong. It's simply a choice. C.S. Lewis wrote this. 
Indeed, the safest road to hell in his book, The Screwtape Letters, is the gradual one, the gentle slip, the soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts, your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. C.S. Lewis writes this book of an older demon training a younger demon on how to distract and to destroy Christians. And what the older demon says to the younger demon, he says this, the safest route to hell is the gradual one. Gee, Chris, this is a heavy message tonight. Well, maybe it is. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's the gentle slope, the soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts, your affectionate uncle, screw tape. What happened in Germany? I'll tell you what happened after the First World War. When the League of Nations created a reparation system for the Germans, sorry, forgive my, German, my history nerding here for a moment. They created such a tough economic, political environment for the Germans that when Hitler came and offered them, dare I say this, make Germany great again. That was his message. They said, absolutely. So the pharmacist who had a little shop on the corner went to the Gestapo and said, yes, there's some Jews hiding away in that building over there. Ladies and gentlemen, evil matters. And whilst you and I are horrified at the thought of possibly giving someone up who will go to their death, can I say it? We kill children in the womb and say there's nothing wrong with it. Evil matters. Thank God he is full of grace and mercy, kindness and forgiveness. But John is a pleading, a, 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 a pleading old man. He says, please, there is an evil one. Please understand his commitment is to slowly but surely drag you from the beauty and the harmony and the perfection of a life with Christ into a stumbling, stuttering life that discolored us with the stains of sin. Evil matters. Fourthly, community matters, sin matters, evil matters, and eternal life matters. John writes, you have eternal life. He is the true God and the eternal life. Six times in this beautiful five-chapter book, he draws us to eternal life. I mentioned J- Jacob Collier earlier on. I was, uh, I've kind of become an evangelist for Jacob Collier. Everywhere I go, I say, have you seen this? And I take them to three or four occasions where he performs with this audience. But there is something incredibly exquisite about him, isn't it? I mean, not about him as a human, but what he hears he sits, I was watching a master class with him where he goes and says, well, you can hear this, can't you? And he goes, ding, 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 ding. And I'm thinking, I can't. I, I don't know what you've just played. But I'm using that because I think there is something exquisite about the life after death that we don't as yet understand. We're flippant with it. We have humorous comments and cartoons about life after death. We have these ridiculously sentimental comments that we make 
at funerals, you know, Uncle so-and-so, he's teeing off, he's at the first hole, and everyone goes, oh, Uncle so-and-so, he's probably burning in hell, but oh, Uncle so-and-so, he's probably teeing off at the first hole in heaven. Popular theology that soothes a sentimental soul but offers us no real picture of an eternal life with Christ and the alternative is too dastardly to contemplate. 1 John 5, 11, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Jude 1, 21, keep yourselves in God. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Revelation 21, I love this. In terms of eternity, and I'll read some cool quotes and we'll end with that, but this is my personal favorite. Because he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Can I read that again? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. I love 40 years of ministry. But the one thing I don't is the amount of tears that we've had to face, people coming to see us. And there are times, as happened on this trip, I just wanted to say, Lord, why don't you just end it? Enough tears, enough heartache, enough pain, enough trauma. Just end it. Just end it. Finally, end it. I don't want to sit, not because, uh, how can I say this? I don't want to have to work with someone whose trauma overwhelms them, not because I don't want to work with them. I just, God, please, please, no more person who having to deal with these things. It's our great privilege to sit with broken people, hurting people, because we are. Eternal life. Let me try and stir your creativity with a couple of quotes. Thomas Boston wrote, the divine perfections will be an unbound field in which the glorified shall walk eternally, seeing more and more of God, since they can never come to the end of the infinite. See the garden where Adam and Eve walked with God naked. And there is something about the garden that we will experience again, whether it's down here, new heavens, new earth, down here or somewhere else, I don't know. But there's an invitation to walking with God in the endless, infinite discovery. Or this one. I love this one, Donald McLeod. He points out that life in the new heaven and the new earth will be more than life in the Garden of the Eden. Listen to this. This is beautiful. Paradise has no mere seminary. It offers scope of art and science and technology as well as theology. The same will doubtless be true in the world to come. Not only the creator, but the creation, too, will be an object of wonder to the redeemed. I'm sorry it's so wordy, but it's elegant. It will challenge their intellects, fire their imagination, stimulate their industry. The scenario is thrilling. Here it comes. Brilliant minds in powerful bodies in a transformed universe. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what it's like. 
But if it's only wiping away every tear, every heartache, every ounce of brokenness, surely that is worth looking to. I think of my own childhood, and I'm not going to go through the whole story with you. But there are times that I could, from when I was a little Ike, tears and screaming and shouting and heartache and pain and brokenness. No more. No more. It's an invitation to a journey of wholeness. I want to meet the whole me, don't you? Aren't you curious what you'll be like then? Aren't you? I mean, firstly, we'll have super cool bodies because it'll be perfect. Can you imagine perfect you? It's like, whoa, what's up? You know, <laughs> that is so cool. That is so cool. I don't know, maybe because I'm getting so old and fat. I kind of think, I want to I see myself when I'm 30, you know, like, yo, that is so cool. <laughs> Do you think there'll be mirrors in heaven? Like, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> oh, down again, pride. Here we go, start again. And they, they think of your emotions perfect and whole. Th- think of that. Not, not a protected soul because of the damage that you've experienced, but an abandoned soul. A soul full of extreme emotions, of joy, indescribable joy through eons of time. John is writing a letter of great appeal. As he comes to the end of his life and he says, Please, brothers and sisters, dear children, young men, fathers, and we know that that's not gender specific. But he's saying, Please remember these things. Community matters, sin matters. You're not unstained. I am not unstained by sin. Evil matters. And then eternal life matters. What a privilege. You close your eyes with me. Thank you for being so gracious with me.